Hello and welcome to the Weekly Defence Podcast. This week brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, Raytheon Intelligence and Space. I'm your host, Ben Vogel, and also with me in the virtual studio are senior land reporter Tim Fish and air editor Tim Martin. Welcome back to you both. All right, good evening. Hi, Ben. So uh, coming up this week on the show, I speak to Gordon Arthur, our Asia-Pacific editor, for his monthly roundup of the news from his region. And our sponsor provides this week's Industry Voice segment with a conversation on developments in satellite ground systems. Both these conversations will be a little bit later in the show. But first, it's time for the main headlines from this week in defence. Rheinmetall and BAE Systems Land officially received an £800 million contract on the 7th of May from the UK MOD to upgrade 148 British Army Challenger 3 main battle tanks. The upgraded Challengers will be network-enabled, digitalised main battle tanks with a 120mm high-pressure main gun, firing kinetic energy anti-tank rounds and programmable multi-purpose ammunition. In the United States, the Army on the 12th of May confirmed plans to retire its Striker mobile gun system by the end of fiscal year 2022. This decision comes after a comprehensive analysis highlighted obsolescence and systemic issues with the system's dated cannon and automatic loader, according to a statement from the US Army. It added that the divestiture of obsolete systems will free up resources and manpower for other critical capability needs. Armed with an 105mm rifled cannon, the Stryker MGS was the first US Army system fielded with an autoloader, but over time it has become costly to maintain. In European naval news, Electronica is to equip Italian U-212 near-future submarines with an electronic warfare suite. A contract from Fincantieri covers the provision of two suites for the first batch of submarines and an optional two additional suites. The software-defined EW suite for the U-212 is designed to perform self-protection, surveillance and intelligence tasks with strong performance across the electromagnetic spectrum, from communication to radar bands. And finally, Red Square in Moscow hosted the annual Russian Victory Day parade on the 9th of May. 12,018 armed forces personnel, 191 military vehicles and 76 aircraft were involved. Although this year the Moscow event was notable for a lack of new equipment on display compared with previous years. There were still parade debutants, including the Buck M3 SAM system, the Typhon PVO armoured manpads vehicle and the ISDM remote mine laying system. However, in his story, our correspondent Leonid Narcissian reported that the more interesting equipment was arguably on show outside the capital. In Nizhny Novgorod, for instance, a 2S43 Malva wheeled self-propelled howitzer was seen in an 8x8 wheeled configuration, as well as the 2S40 Flox and 2S41 Drock self-propelled artillery pieces that are part of the next-gen Nabrasok family of systems. And this concludes the headlines, so let's now go to our domain editors, as always, to get an insight on other news. This week, I wanted to discuss with you both, Tim Martin and Tim Fish, from different perspectives, of course, the deployment of the UK Carrier Strike Group to the Indo-Pacific region. Now, as many listeners may know, HMS Queen Elizabeth set sail on the 1st of May for a 28-week deployment, and we all know about the importance of this mission for the UK and its relationship with allies in the Far East. But I just wanted to talk to you both about the actual capabilities of the group in general and of HMS Queen Elizabeth, of course, in particular. So let me start with you, Tim Fish. Um, 
how well equipped is the carrier strike group and, and what kind of capabilities does it actually feature? Yeah, it's a pretty um, powerful array of, of ships that are, that are going on this journey as a part of the task force. Um, not only have you got Queen Elizabeth with its F-35Bs and uh, Wildcat helicopters, Merlin helicopters, but you've got two Type 45 destroyers, you've got two Type 23 frigates, and you've got a uh, astute class submarine um, moving ahead of it. It's supported by two Royal Fleet Auxiliary ships, um, a tanker and a, a dry stores vessel. And then you've got two foreign ships, the uh, the Dutch frigate um, Evertsen and then um, the USS Arleigh Burke destroyer, the um, the Sullivans. So between between those ships, you've got, you know, full array of uh, long-range radars. Uh, Sullivan's got Aegis system. You've got SM-2 surface-to-air missiles, evolved Sea Sparrow missiles, Harpoon surface-to-surface missiles, torpedoes, um, Tomahawk, you know, land attack missiles. Um, so, and on the Type 45s, you've got um, the Aster as well, and uh, the Type 23s have got anti-surface warfare towed array sonars and torpedoes. So, between between all of that, you've got pretty much everything going um, in terms of weapons and sensors um, that you can possibly get. The most modern ships all, all steaming along together, providing quite an array of of, of powerful um, offensive and defensive uh, armaments there. So, in terms of what it offers, it's um, it's it's about as strong as as a European deployment as as we've seen. Um, and the questions are about. Um, what they're going to do on the journey and what they're going to test out, um, what they're going to prove. So it'll be interesting to see how how the whole uh, trip goes. Um, and of course, I guess uh, I mean the main the main kind of reason for it is is, is to fill its sort of political obligations as it as it goes through on the on this trip out there as well. Indeed. And of course, as you mentioned, Tim, there's a, an international dimension to this group. It's not just UK uh, naval assets and and uh, UK aircraft. Um, you know. This is a, a quite a significant test of the UK's ability to to operate in concert with its allies as well, isn't it? Yeah, the um, the ability for the UK to interoperate with allies is is always been a key component of what it does. The Royal Navy is quite good at it. Um, this is the first time that they're going to do it in such size. But I mean, you know, like pilots, RAF pilots, and you know, Navy pilots have worked with, with the US Marine Corps and the, the US Navy before. The 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 Evertson and the the Sullivan. Both those both those ships um, practiced, uh, did a sort of like a dry run of of the deployment last year, so they were involved in in doing sort of a test run, if you like. So they they know what they're doing. Um, the question with with um, interoperability is, I mean, Tim Martin can can give you a bit more detail about the F thirty five contingents on on Queen Elizabeth. But in terms of the ships themselves, they'll they'll use sort of the the same similar networking, NATO standard Link sixteen. Uh, Link 22 kind of networks that would exchange data and information. My only kind of the only limitation I think would, is that the um, the Type 45 destroyers don't have the cooperative engagement capability, which um, which would help a lot more in terms of um, targeting and, and weapon systems engagements um, using the sensors of other other ships. But they don't have that, so that's that's the only kind of the only limitation. But they'll probably find other ways of, of doing that. Okay, and uh, speaking of uh, speaking of Tim Martin, who can who could speak about the uh, F thirty five? I mean, this is the first time that UK um, fighters have been embarked on an operational aircraft carrier deployment since twenty ten, I think, and it's certainly going to be the largest number of F thirty five Bs to to embark uh, on a, on a, on a sailing mission, as it were. 
Um, perhaps you could uh, comment a little bit about that and, and uh, also address the, the, the interoperability issue that uh, um, Tim Fish mentioned. Yeah, exactly. So as Tim kind of mentioned, he uh, teed me up nicely on the, the RPAR side. So there's 18 F-35s that are going to be deployed with uh, the Car Strike Group. Uh, so 10 of those are from the US Marine Corps and then eight from the UK. So uh, 617 Squadron and the Dam Busters as well. Uh, and then on the, the rotary front, um, so there'll be three Merlin Mark IVs and, and four Wildcats. Um, and, sorry, and yeah, seven uh, Merlin Mark IIs as well. So it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's quite a formidable array of, of, of aircraft, certainly. Um, yeah, and as you mentioned, uh, this is the first time since the Harriers were on board an aircraft carrier in, in 2011 that that a successor, uh, let's say, has been embarked, so the, the F-35. Um, so, yeah, it'd be very, very interesting to see, um, you know, going forward, and as Tim mentioned, what it means kind of politically. We always often hear of the, the crowded wa- waters in the South China Sea and so forth, um, and, and around that area. So, yeah, the, the, and obviously this, this ties in uh, very nicely with what the Integrated Review was talking about in terms of modernization and in terms of that strategic uh, pivot from kind of counterinsurgency to an Indo-Pacific tilt. Um, and, you know, there's been, I suppose, in some quarters, some have said that that's mimicking the, the US uh, foreign policy approach. Um, and to a certain degree, uh, you know, you could uh, agree with that. Um, but also, given the the, the uh, offers from allies to, to participate with um, with UK assets, um, certainly you would have to say that there's uh, a fairly strong, represents kind of a, a fairly strong, uh, let's say, track record with allies. Um, and it's certainly something that the UK has been uh, keen on highlighting, that it's, it isn't just, um, you know, UK aircraft are, are participating in this one. Indeed, yes. And, and there, there are, in fact, uh, more U- US Marine Corps F-35s embarked on, on, on Queen Elizabeth and then UK yeah, F-35s, exactly. which is an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, there has been some... There has been some mention of that or some critique of that that is that is to suggest that um, the build-up and capability for the UK F-35 uh, has still to kind of uh, reach its high point, let's say. And of course, there are more deliveries to come. Um, obviously, the contract is for 48 at the moment, as we know. But I, I, yeah, I don't know how far a comment that, that would be really um, and whether the, the split of its uh, 10 Marine Corps F-35s and uh, 8 F-35Bs for with the UK is representative of, of, a, of a wider issue in terms of, um, you know, operational readiness and availability and things like that. I don't know, t- to be quite honest, and I, certainly you wouldn't get uh, senior representatives in MOD uh, talking like that. Okay, well, thank you both for, for those comments on the, uh, on the carrier strike group. Let's uh, move to the land desk now. And um, we've got a story from our Polish contributor, Greg Sobchak, about Poland moving forward with its short-range air defence procurement in the NAREV programme. I think I've pronounced that correctly. I think it's called NAREV. Um, and uh, Tim, um, I wonder if you could just sort of uh, comment on that a little bit. Uh, can you just sort of remind listeners about the uh, the overall aim of NAREV and, and what, what kind of capabilities it's uh, bringing to the Polish military? Yeah, sure. I mean, NAREV is, is one part of Poland's um, programme to upgrade its uh, ground-based air defence systems, um, and it's been a kind of a long-running program. It kind of it's the middle part, so it deals with the medium range, 
um, air defense capability specifically. And the announcement in the story is just that that, that the local company, uh, Polish Armament Group, the PGZ, uh, has been appointed the main contractor for Nauru. Um, this is this is kind of not a surprise. This is um, a company that's always designated as the local manufacturer for the system because any all the systems that that are selected to, that make up this particular system, um, you know, radar and, and missiles and that will all be have to be manufactured in Poland by this company under license. So it, it's kind of moving the program on a bit, but they still haven't selected the the interceptor. There's some, they haven't selected the missile yet. And that's kind of one of the key uh, contracts that needs to be assigned because because um, that will kind of, that's where all the foreign um, missile manufacturers are all lining up with their particular variants. So it's it's a step in the right direction, but they've still got a long way to go. They they it, it's it's important because it's quite a highly competitive program. We've got Asselsan, Deal, IAI, Kongsbird, MDNA, Rafale, Tellers, Miads International. You've got all these companies lined up to to kind of offer their 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 interceptor missile, and it's worth overall um, about five point three billion US dollars. Um, they want. Um, 19 batteries um and these these all these all designed to take down um aircraft sort of medium altitude aircraft um helicopters unmanned aerial systems cruise missiles stuff like that so it's an important part of the um of the the wider spread of air defense systems that they're getting yes yeah i, I was going to ask you tim i mean how, how does nara fit into that kind of polish air defense architecture if i can call it that um, well, it's it's the central component, really, because the uh, the medium altitude uh, targets that it's designed to to counter are the, the kind of the new modern threats, if you like, you know, swarm UAS, you know, long range cruise missiles. Um, they're, they're the kind of main new threats that are coming out. Um, they've already procured the uh, the Whistler system, which is um, their long range component, and they've bought uh, the the Patriot. Uh, from Raytheon under a contract they signed in 2017, which is again pretty lo- large sums of money. You're talking about about uh, 4.75 billion US dollars, um, but that one's kind of stalled a bit. They they, they completed phase one where they're buying two batteries of Patriot with the Patriot three missile, the MSE, um, with deliveries um, due to start in 2022 and initial operating capability to kind of come in around 2023. But it seems to have stalled. They're supposed to get eight systems, so they're they're still considering. Just, you know, progressing with the phase two of that to get another six, um, which will, which will kind of get them the full capability they're looking for. But they're they're kind of umming and ahhing about it because the the Pack Three uh, MSC Patriot missile is quite costly. So they now Raytheon's offered um, the Sky Scepter interceptor, which is um, a modification of a Raf- Israeli a Rafael uh, company's Stunner inter- interceptor, which they use in their David Sling air defense system. So, I mean, that, that that's kind of moving forwards a little bit ahead, but it's still stalled a little bit. And that's designed to sort of to combat more traditional long-range threats such as uh, short-range ballistic missiles and um, and and aircraft, high-altitude aircraft and uh, long-range rockets and things. So that one's kind of a little bit ahead, but they're still kind of stalling on that one. Whereas the very short-range system, which is kind of almost line-of-sight uh, system, that one's PGZ has already... Uh, got a contract for that to to provide uh, its uh, SPZR uh, um, manpad uh, missiles. So they've already started deliveries of that a few years ago, um, and they're fitting those to a four by four vehicle. So in terms of the whole spread of of capabilities, um, they're, they're 
some big sums of money involved. It's a lot of competition. Um, they're pushing forwards with them, but it is progressing slowly. But PGZ, um, by providing the the main kind of ground elements, if you like, of of the NARU system, uh, NARUV, sorry, system, um, with the surveillance radar, passive and active elements, fire control, um, with tests to be completed um, uh, later this year for uh, some of those components and then hopefully get more parts um, introduced uh, in 2023. Um, that's at least taking that part of that particular program forward and uh, hopefully they'll they'll select a uh, command and control system and a and a interceptor sooner rather than later. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed, Tim, for that update. So uh, let's move back to Tim Martin and uh, perhaps not good news uh, from the UK MOD uh, this week, um, reported um, by you in a story, because the UK government still appears to be undecided on requirements for its medium helicopter um, acquisition. So, you know, maybe you could give us a, a little bit of background to this and, and perhaps uh, some insight into what, what's causing the delay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, first and foremost, the um, replacement of uh, the RAF uh, Puma Fleet HC2, of which they have 23, um, had been expected for some time. Um, but it was pi- finally put in, in black and white in the Defence Command paper that was released um, in March. Along, alongside that, uh, it was also mentioned uh, that, a, in fact, a successor aircraft uh, will be will be sought for uh, Army Air Corps Bell 212, RAF Bell 412, and Airbus AS365 uh, Dolphins used by the Special Forces. So, uh, in effect, what, what's happening is that, and sorry, the procurement itself is... Uh, called the new medium helicopter uh, acquisition. So, um, in effect, this is uh, the UK trying to almost uh, streamline their their rotary fleets, and you know, from for what they r- referred to as uh, disparate fleets uh, into one. Um, and so, uh, three weeks later, um, you know, I was reaching out to the MOD just to confirm. And how things are shaping up in terms of uh, procurement strategy and so forth, and uh, but actually they said that uh, at the moment, um, because the program is such is at such an early stage, they haven't made a decision on the procurement strategy, and um, so you can take that to read as in they haven't decided on a on a specific fleet size. Let's say the basin locations um, and things of that nature are are still to be determined. And of course, then you also have industry in limbo in terms of um, requirements, technical specs, specification, uh, operational requirements, and so forth. Um, so we'll wait and see. Uh, the spokesperson that I was in, in touch with didn't uh, divulge any divulge anything significant in terms of when a decision uh, would be made. But the, I think probably what is significant in terms of the planning process and the uh, moving out with the procurement strategy is that the um, the DSAIS and um, the Defence and Security Industrial Strategy that arrived with um, the integrated review and the command paper has tweaked fairly significantly the way in which the UK is going to do business and um, from um, procuring assets. Um, and I think what is interesting on that, on that front is that the, the big shift is from a, an approach previously where it was, it's referred to as 
um, global competition by default. Um, so that's not no longer uh, going to be going to be the the approach taken and and um, the shift really is that from from moving from that way of thinking and um, decision makers will effectively be able to be able to have a license basically or be free to judge that um were global competition at the prime level and i'm quoting here from dsis were global competition at the prime level may be ineffective or incompatible uh, with uk national security priorities then there wouldn't be any uh, requirement um, for decision makers to to be effectively roll out a competition to you know the likes of um, American manufacturers, UK manufacturers. You know they could pretty much keep it a a closed competition. Um, you know as in, favoring UK industry. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. No, you would they would have to make the argument that it you know it focuses on um, UK prosperity would be increased, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, I think it is a significant tweak, um, but in in terms of who the industry hopefuls are, um, I mean, clearly Leonardo would be an obvious candidate, and they have um, made a big play of the, the AW one four nine um, since as early as uh, twenty nineteen. Now, of course, going back that time, that was just for the the RAF or sorry for the, the Puma replacement itself. Um, and but you also have the, who also could be interested Airbus helicopters potentially pitching the the H one seven five which is a, a civil super medium class uh, helicopter and um, potentially then you would also have Bell with the five two five and Lockheed Martin with the um, Blackhawk uh, I wrote in the story but I think it is very interesting that uh, on three different occasions the UK rejected uh, offers from Sikorsky on the Blackhawk and this was in the round 2009 and um, so it was the the guard the observer who reported that um the decision was taken um to upgrade the Puma fleet rather than buy um Blackhawks um, and that was, and then subsequently, obviously, the UK decided to go with a, a three hundred million pound upgrade for um for the Puma fleet. Um, so whether you know eleven years, twelve years down the line, that's that's changed, and Blackhawk will be on offer, uh, and yeah, the UK will will kind of have a, a another chance to to buy it. Uh, remains to be seen. Um, but I did speak to a spokesperson from uh, Lockheed Martin who said that. Dependent on requirements, uh, the the company could pitch the latest generation uh, Blackhawk. So, and um, that's kind of an overview of the the runners and riders. Let's say from an industry industry perspective. Okay, so it's uh, early days in this particular program, but uh, plenty of details to be filled in. And uh, the uh, story went online yesterday for any listeners and visitors to our website. Yeah, I mean, um, check it out. You'd probably just finally mention that uh, the UK will. I'll obviously have to to make a, a decision or or push forward with the the requirements fairly soon because they want to have um the Puma replaced or retired in in twenty twenty five. So you know, just read into that the amount of time it takes for a tender process to happen, and and then for the, the aircraft to be delivered in twenty twenty five. So you would expect news um soon enough. You know. Okay. Thank you very much again, Tim. And thank you also to Tim Fish. For our listeners, uh, if you want to find out a bit more about Shepherd's defence news coverage, previous episodes of the podcast, video content and more, please visit our website, shepherdmedia.com news. Coming up after the break is my conversation with Asia-Pacific editor Gordon Arthur. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Andrew. 
and Shepard has asked me to speak to you about my experience with Defense Insight, Shepard's all-in-one market analysis tool that has helped me spend less time finding opportunities and more time winning them. With full market data at my fingertips, I'm able to identify upcoming and lapsed programs, see the bids that won and failed, and, this is the part that really helps, beat my competition to opportunities and increase my win rate. Shepard's tool brings together programs, systems, and subsystems into one integrated location, so you can see the entire supply chain. So whether you're a researcher, business developer like me, or your role is focused on strategy development, see how powerful Insight can help improve your everyday with a free product demo. Contact the experts at insights at shepherdmedia.com. Welcome back to our regular catch-up with Shepard's Asia-Pacific editor, Gordon Arthur, to see what's been making the news in his region over recent weeks. Hi, Gordon. How are you? Hi there, Ben. Nice to be talking to you. And uh, I gather you've got a, an important tennis match coming up. I do indeed. Would you like to <laughs> well, talk about that tonight? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think perhaps our listeners would rather we talked about Asia-Pacific. So uh, let's talk news and we'll start in India Yes, yeah, so if we start off with uh, the land domain, so as you mentioned, India, um, and on the 22nd of April, they issued a, a request for information, a tender process. Um, so they're looking for light tanks. Now, this is nothing new for India because they, they have sought um, light tanks before. Obviously, a, a light tank is a lot better, better than a, a medium or heavy tank when you're driving around uh, mountains or um, difficult terrain. So that seems to be the, the main reason that they're, they're looking for these tanks. And obviously galvanized by the fact that uh, last year, India and China had a, a pretty brutal confrontation uh, along the, the border. And of course, that those tensions are continuing. Um, China has Type 15 light tanks of its own uh, in Tibet. And so India would like something to, to match those. The quantities are interesting, uh, 350 tanks that they're looking for, which is quite a, a sizable contract. It's, it's interesting too. I mean, a lot of countries talk about light tanks, but how many actually go through and, and buy them um, is, is very few. Uh, the Philippines is, is one um, that has. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with this particular requirement in India. Okay. Now, this uh, this latest RFI, um, we've been here before in India without anything necessarily tangible turning up as a result. Uh, what, if anything, is different about this particular RFI that suggests it might actually be followed through? I think it's a sense of urgency. And India often has its only itself to blame because um, it just things get mired down in, in red tape and in ineptitude and uh, nothing moves forward. So the, the previous RFI for light tanks was actually way back in 2009, so 12 years ago. But the, the difference this time, I think, is the, the realisation that, that China is a, a force to be reckoned with. Um, it is being aggressive along its northern border. So it is time to, to do something about that. Um, if we can have a quick discussion about some of the, the possibilities. So uh, Russia is obviously a, um, a stalwart, stalwart um, supplier of, of equipment to, to India. So perhaps the Russians will be offering something there. They have a, a couple of designs that could be uh, potentially um, suitable, but perhaps a little bit too light 
for what the Indians are looking for because they're looking for a vehicle in the 25-ton payload um, or 25-ton um, gross weight category. So there's, there's actually not that many tanks that would fit um, that restriction. India has been talking about using the, the K-9 um, hull, uh, which is an artillery piece that uh, India has acquired um, and license built in India, and so perhaps mating that hull with a turret. But I think the problem would be um, that vehicle would, would turn out to be way too heavy, um, at least in the 40-ton the category. So personally, I think the one that probably has the, the greatest chance of success is Hanwha Defence's um, K-21 105, which is based on the, the K-21 uh, infantry fighting vehicle as used by the, the South Korean military, uh, but fitted with a, a, a John Cockerell defense turret mounting a 105-millimeter high-pressure gun. So that, that one is pretty much bang on in, in terms of the, the, the weight category that India is looking for. Okay, so uh, we'll wait to see what happens with that particular RFI. Um, but while India is very keen to buy light tanks, relatively light tanks, uh, the Aussies are actually pushing to upgrade their heavy armour. Um, so perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about that uh, that story that you wrote. Yes, yeah, so this is something that we've been following for, for quite a while. So Australia has has had a requirement for, for heavy armour and also engineering support vehicles uh, for a number of years. And so things are, are finally starting to move. So on the 29th of April, the, the US Defence Security Corporation Agency announced a, a $1.69 billion potential foreign military sale to Canberra. So again, the, the numbers are pretty interesting, High, relatively high numbers. Um, the announcement, it listed 160 uh, M1, A1, Abrams tank structures or hulls. And from them, um, Australia will sort of put together uh, 75 M1A2 um, SEP V3 Abrams tanks, 29 assault breacher vehicles, 18 joint assault bridges, and at the same time, they'll also order another six M88A2 Hercules armoured recovery vehicles. So these are pretty pretty high numbers. Not a surprise, though, because Australia has been looking to, to increase the number of tanks that it's got. Uh, it has 59 M1A1 um, AIM Abrams tanks, and it, it just felt that that wasn't really enough. So obviously it's, it's increasing that number. And the important thing is the addition of these engineering uh, vehicles, so the assault breacher vehicles and the, the bridges. And probably the, those numbers are, are higher than we expected. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, why, why does Australia need quite so many? Um, I, I can understand if they want to recapitalise their existing inventory, what, what's the what's the impetus behind wanting to buy even more armored vehicles? Well, if you were in the in the the armored corps, wouldn't you want to have nice big heavy new vehicles as well? Um, it's an interesting question. I think that the last time tanks Australian tanks were used in combat was the the Vietnam War uh, centurions. So they haven't been used in combat for a long time. So pretty much all the expeditionary operations that Australia has been involved with, um, whether it be East Timor or Iraq or Afghanistan, um, the, the heaviest vehicles they've used is the, the ASLAV or the M113. So the, yeah, an Abrams tank, that's, that's a totally different kettle of fish trying to move those into a uh, to another country for expeditionary purposes. 
Um, but I think again, it's it's just there. There is a a long tradition of of having main battle tanks in the Australian Army, and um, it's time to to update the fleet it's got because it's, it's had them for quite a a number of years. Uh, the other advantage of this particular acquisition is it puts Australia on exactly the same footing as the USA. So it will be the the very latest Abrams configuration. Um, you've got the commonality, the the ease of integration uh, between Australia and the USA. So that's important. The one thing that wasn't mentioned in this um, announcement was Australia's desire to get armoured engineer vehicles. And the reason for that simply is that the US Army um, or the the US industry, they don't make uh, an armoured engineering vehicle as such. So it looks like Australia is going to have to uh, come up with its own design. Uh, Again, it will be based on the M1 um, Abrams. It's got surplus holes, so it'll be looking for a company in Australia, something like perhaps General Dynamics Land Systems or BAE Systems to help them develop this armoured engineer vehicle because that's that's been a stated requirement for some time. That sounds very interesting, uh, one, to, one to keep an eye on, certainly. Um, let's move on to naval matters now, Gordon, and um, the big news over, over recent weeks has been uh, in China where... Three new ships have been commissioned, new naval vessels, and uh, in your story, you you call them apex predators, which is a an interesting way of describing them. So uh, perhaps you can give us a bit more information. For sure. Now, twenty twenty third of April. That's obviously a date that would be etched in your your mind, Ben, because it is Saint George's Day. Is it? Well, no, it's it's actually the the anniversary date of the the founding of the People's Liberation Army Navy. Um, oh, how silly of me, I forgot. Yeah, so this this was a pretty big occasion. It happens to be the 72nd anniversary of the PLA Navy this year. And to, to celebrate, uh, they launched three uh, separate ships, uh, different classes, and uh, very impressive. I mean, it's not very often that a, a Navy gets to commission at least 60,000 tonnes worth of ship in one go. Uh, but that's what the, the PLA Navy did. Uh, the president, uh, let's, let's say the chairman, uh, Xi Jinping, he was there. Uh, it happened at Sanya Naval Base on Hainan Island, uh, which is sort of the yeah, South South China, um, at the top of the, the South China Sea. So it would seem that these three ships will be uh, part of that. South Sea Fleet sounds quite provocative, doesn't it? Almost. Uh... Yes, I mean that's that's their their home. That's where the South Sea Fleet sort of based mostly. So um, no no surprise there. But it, it does put them within easy striking distance of the South China Sea, and as our listeners will know, that's uh, an area of of growing tension. So I'm sure you want to know what these three particular apex predators are, um, and the reason we call them apex. Predators are they're pretty pretty sophisticated ships. So first of all, we have the uh, a Type 075 uh, landing helicopter dock, um, an LHD, and this one's received the name Hainan. Uh, not sure of the exact displacement, but something perhaps around about between 35 40,000 tons. This is the first um, one that the Chinese Navy has um, introduced. And it will enable a sort of a step change in the amphibious capability of the the PLA, PLA Navy. Up till now, it's been operating LPDs, um, so so this will be a a great improvement. 
Of course, it's not the uh, it's not the only one. Um, two others are under construction, um, so China will end up with a number of of LHDs. So perhaps in in a number of years to come, uh, we'll see Chinese marine expeditionary units uh, traversing the the oceans um, of the world. Uh, the second ship that was commissioned on the 23rd of April was a, a Type 055 uh, guided missile cruiser. It's actually the third, the third in the class. It's the first one for the South Sea Fleet, uh, but it's a pretty impressive warship, 180 metres long, full load displacement of 13,000 tonnes. So it, it's, it's amongst the, the largest of its class, of its type. Um, in the world. Um, talking to different people, some have said the Type 055 marks an inflection point for the, the Chinese naval design. Um, it's designed, obviously, to, to accompany and to protect um, aircraft carriers. Uh, it has a huge number of, of missile launch cells. Um, it can do all sorts of, of things. Um, so that's a, a pretty important and pretty capable warship, and we'll see more and more of these uh, being commissioned. So it doesn't necessarily add a brand new capability for the Chinese Navy, but it augments what's already there, the cruiser Dalian? Or... Yeah, I, I think it, it, you could say it's, it's, it's moved the, the Navy a step forward. So in terms of its capabilities, its, its sensors, the, the number of weapons that it can carry, um, it's, it's a huge step up from the, the previous Type 052D um, destroyer. Um, certainly a lot a lot more sophisticated. How sophisticated is difficult to say. How can you can compare it to an American one? It's never been used in combat. Um, but I, I would suspect, um, suspect that it's, it's pretty pretty capable. And the, the third um, vessel uh, to be commission, commissioned on that day was a, a Type 094 ballistic missile submarine, so obviously nuclear-powered, um, and it, it marks a, a growing fleet of SSBNs for the, uh, for the Chinese Navy. How many of these does the, the Chinese Navy have? Um, some people say six, some people say seven, but certainly I think it was last year um, China commissioned two um, in one go. So um, this certainly adds to the fleet. Uh, equipped with JL-2 um, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, perhaps a range of 7,200 kilometres. Um, if it wants to fire them on the USA, um, it still has to sail a bit closer. So there'll be a follow-on um, class. Um, of SS SSBNs yet to come, the, the Type 096. But in the meantime, China seems to be progressively improving um, the, the capabilities of this particular type of submarine. So, um, and speaking of submarines, uh, I gather that the Chinese Navy is helping in the uh, investigation after the unfortunate and tragic uh, Indonesian submarine disaster recently. Yeah. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that, Ben, because yeah, as, as we know, 21st of April, uh, Indonesian Navy submarine went missing. Uh, there was a, um, a sudden jumping into action by, by various Navy neighbours and, and navies, so Singapore, Malaysia, India, etc., um, all offered assistance. And unfortunately, yeah, the submarine was found uh, more than 800 metres deep on the, the seafloor with the loss of 53 uh, submariners' lives. But interestingly, Indonesia seems intent to recover and to salvage 
uh, that particular submarine, uh, perhaps to find out what actually went wrong. And it's the Chinese who have stepped forward um, and offered to, to salvage this uh, wreckage uh, from the seafloor uh, free of charge. So just last week, uh, several Chinese Navy ships um, arrived in Indonesian waters to to begin that recovery or uh, that, that salvage effort, which I find quite interesting, Ben, because just over a year ago, um, the Chinese had sailed a fishing fleet accompanied by maritime enforcement vessels into Indonesian waters uh, near the Natuna Islands. Um, and Indonesia uh, launched a, a fleet of naval vessels to, to push them back um, and, and send them on their way. Um, also, China has been using... Um, wave gliders to um, sort of map and to survey waters and, and straits around Indonesia. Uh, but at this point in time, um, they're making use of uh, China. So perhaps it's like inviting the, the fox into the hen house. Very interesting uh, analogy there. <laughs> um, moving on to military aviation, Gordon. And uh, you reported on a big uh, helicopter procurement spree in South Korea. So uh, What's being bought in that country? Yeah, so the South Korean uh, military, they do have a, a rather large Marine Corps. Up till recently, the South Korean Marines haven't had their own helicopters, so they've had to rely on the, the ROC Navy um, for helicopter support. But they're actually building their own aviation capability. So they're receiving transport helicopters, which is the MUH-1 Marine-On, uh, produced by KAI in South Korea. So they've got that one covered, but they've also been looking for attack helicopters. So these are helicopters that would support an amphibious assault, um, that would give them a, an armed capability. And there were a number of different contenders. I think probably the strongest were the, the Boeing Apache and also the Bell AH-1Z Viper. But um, South Korea's turned its nose up on, on all of those and it's decided it, it would better um, produce them itself. So what it's actually doing is producing, a, it's going to produce an armed version of the MUH-1, which they will call the, the Marine Attack Helicopter. And uh, it's, it's pretty much a, a standard um, Marine-on, uh, but with, with weapons installed. So the South Korean Marines want an attack helicopter, a dedicated attack helicopter, but what they're getting is is not um, in that category. This is a, a large and not so nimble helicopter. It's it's in terms of protection, um, in terms of maneuverability, in terms of firepower. It's, it's not going to be the same as something as a, an Apache or a, a Viper. So the main reason for this is comes down to, to cost efficiencies and supporting local industry. Um, so that's been right. Yeah, the key key criteria for South Korea. Okay, and so the fact that the South Koreans have kind of turned away from buying American-produced kits, um, that seems to indicate a, a almost a, a made-in-Korea policy, slightly analogous to analogous to the uh, make-in-India uh, domestic defence policy. Or is that is that a bit too much of, of no, a stretch? No, South Korea has a very uh, intensive desire to to be independent, to, to not rely on other countries. So in terms of naval shipbuilding, in terms of aerospace, in terms of land equipment, digital stuff, uh, South Korea is, is remarkably um, self-sufficient. I mean, 
um, armored vehicles, for example, all artillery, all of them are uh, designed and built in South Korea. Um, naval shipbuilding is, is pretty much all done in South Korea. So KAI, um, as we've mentioned before, um, involved in the um, the KF-X, which is now the KF-21 um, fighter. So that'll be the most sophisticated um, aircraft that um, South Korea has come up with. Um, so yeah, South Korea has been making helicopters for quite a while um, at home. So the MUH-1 uh, is based on the Syrian, which was done in conjunction with Airbus, so technical cooperation and assistance going on there. Uh, but certainly at every every step of the way, South Korea is seeking to indigenize and to, to be more self-sufficient in terms of defense industry. Uh, UAVs, that's another area where South Korea is particularly uh, are putting a lot of effort into indigenous solutions. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed for this uh, particular wrap-up, Gordon, and we look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks, Ben. For 40 years, Shepard has been leading the way in the defense space, and now we're on a mission to revolutionize the industry through connecting decision-makers with the best business information and marketing solutions out there. With over 80% of global defense spend, Defense Insight is the leading market analysis tool for anybody in the industry, whilst advertisers can leverage our 1.9 million audience to promote their message with meaning. Shepard, a full suite of solutions built to give you the decisive edge in defense. So welcome to this week's Industry Voice segment. This week, we are sponsored by Raytheon Intelligence in Space. I'm sitting down with Christy Cox, who's a program director for Satellite Ground Systems, and Karen Casey, who's a chief engineer for Satellite Ground Systems. Thanks for your time and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, we are here to talk about Satellite Ground Systems. Um, I guess this is all about how the military can take you know, the data that they collect, share that data, and enable faster decision-making. So you know, what does that mean in terms of what you do the sort of conversations you're having with your customer and how is, in terms of modern context, how is how's the satellite information enabling that faster decision-making? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'll start out. I know Christy has some good inputs here too, but l- let me just start out by saying we describe what we do in simple terms, but the way you described it is really key. Behind the scenes, it's a tremendously complex process that consists of many complex piece parts to take that satellite data and do something meaningful with it. And and to your question, you know, what does it mean to, to get to these decisions faster? What it means is data is coming down at a rate of speed like we've never seen before. And it's being multiplied across more sensors, and more satellites than ever before. So what that means for us down on the ground, building these ground systems, is you've got all these pieces of data, zeros and ones. You need algorithms to transform that data. And you need to be able to take mountains of data and find that needle in the haystack that basically says, here is something meaningful. Here's a volcano. Here is something else from a weather event that that is key that needs to be communicated rapidly. 
So that's kind of a short answer, you know, shortish, long answer, maybe, maybe you would call it a medium answer. Um, but at the end of the day, what it means to get to these decisions faster, we want that volume of data. We embrace these mountains and oceans of data that are coming at us because that means that there are more needles in these haystacks. So we can go after them. And the key is to fast grab those needles and make it available to the users of our systems so they understand in very simple terms why that is important data. I think that's a great point, Karen. There's the volume of data, which is driving a need for a lot of automation and a lot of AI ML capabilities behind that so that you can actually submit meaningful information to the user itself. And I think another one of the challenges to consider when you're thinking about um, speed is speed to market for being able to rapidly insert technology within your capabilities. So it's not just the volume of data coming down, it's the pace of technology that's happening in the world around us and how we insert capabilities very quickly into the solutions that we deliver. Yeah, that's awesome. And you know, just one quick thing about that is part of what gets you that faster needle in the haystack is when we build these ground systems, they are software, COTS, FOSS, hardware, a lot of big complex parts, right? But the key to getting to faster is delivering these ground systems faster. So we don't deliver every two years. We're moving at a speed right now where we are delivering ground systems literally on month, two-month boundaries. When it used to, when it used to be, um, years. I mean, it would take two years from start of a program till we made our first delivery. And that was on a fast program. Christy probably remembers some of those too. And now we're doing right. it, right? <laughs> and, yeah. and now we're doing it literally, I mean, literally four months is, and, and we're trying to speed that up. <laughs> yeah. We used to, we used to think a lot about the end objective in mind. And now we think about all those interim steps. We've got to change as we go. So employing technologies, just like commercial industries are for agile practices and things to deliver capabilities faster and, and potentially not always knowing where we're going as we're, as we're speeding along. Um, you know, you, you make some really good, great points there. I guess the, the military satellite business traditionally hasn't been famous for being that operationally responsive because of the nature of the timelines involved, as you've highlighted. Could you give us some, perhaps provide some more examples of what industry is doing to sort of speed up that timelines? I mean, practically, how do you go about doing that? Well, here's a good example. On our program, uh, we are highly motivated to go find technology building blocks from anywhere. I mean, literally, software. this is software, this is hardware. So we can pull in innovation um, from any source. So, and, and honestly, I truly believe those are the kinds of things that speed us up. We can go to a small company and say, hey, you've got a better algorithm. You've got a better mousetrap. Let's, let's use that. Let's work together, right? Um, and put that building block into our system. So that's not something that we have to go now build new lines of code from scratch, speeds us up. It's like, it's like as if you're building a Maserati or you're building a car, we can now go out and get the best tire, the best engine, right? And put these pieces together faster um, and bring mission value. To add to that, one thing that we're seeing with our international partners as well is just being able to embrace prototyping 
um, willing to fail a little bit faster, um, willing to um, do experiments and demos that we wouldn't have before, uh, just as more things in space and ground are becoming commodity, like Karen was saying, all the different COTS and FOSS and you know commercial applications that can be brought in. If you think about the sort of technologies that we're launching and how we're launching those into, into space, just becoming more and more approachable, faster, cheaper. Uh, there's a greater tolerance for risk. There's a greater tolerance for prototyping, um, failing and learning as you do so and succeeding as well, of course. Every time we, we sort of have these kind of conversations, it invariably comes back to the idea of, um, I guess, multi-domain operations. And, and there's, there's various... Um, catch-all phrases for for that kind of term, and from a space perspective, what can can be done to better serve and enable that coalition interoperability? Um, how do you guys sort of see that developments um, from a US point of view, but then taking that international um, viewpoint? It's it's a it's a great question because if you think about, I mean, the US has has done so much to lead early um, space development, and. Every day on the news, we see examples of different data sources, whether it's um, EO or weather or synthetic aperture radar in some cases, airborne imagery. It's just becoming more and more of our daily lives. And as more nations participate and launch their own capabilities, it just enables um, the fact that a larger coalition of space missions can work together in a different way. So coordination is key. Uh, a couple a couple points to, to extend there. Um, Obviously, there's the technology and being able to share data and share taste tasking, excuse me, um, across across different boundaries, if you will. Um, so there's a technical challenge there. There's also a major policy implication as well on how different nations put in place the policy to be able to work together, uh, to do targeting together, to do tasking together, to work together on a common mission. Um, each one has a different policy for data sharing. Each one has different national space policies and all those sorts of legal considerations as well, whether you're talking about launch or ground operations or the space operations themselves. Um, so some of the enabling technology out there is obviously standards uh, to make things work together, but a large part of this is going to be driven by uh, policy arrangements between multinational organizations. And one thing just on interoperability that I think is important to know, um, how you architect and design the system can enable it. I mean, think about something as simple as your iPhone, right? It's been architected and engineered to be able to support this huge diversity of apps, right? Why? Well, it's it's an open system for applications, right? There's clear APIs that are published so that apps can know what they need to do in order to be hosted on this platform. So those kind of technical innovations about architecture, open architecture, um, also help support interoperability from a technical perspective as well. That's a good good point to end things on. Guys, thanks very much for your time. Uh, Christy Cox and Karen Casey, both with Raytheon Intelligence and Space. Appreciate the chat. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. This episode of the Weekly Defence Podcast was brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, Raytheon Intelligence and Space. A big thank you to everybody who took the time to be with us today. And for our listeners, if you enjoyed the show, make sure you like and subscribe or leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to know more about the market landscape in the defence sector, 
visit shepherdmedia.com slash subscribe and redeem your free trial to our premium news, where you get international coverage of equipment innovation, company news, program updates, and more from our team of expert journalists. Until next week, thank you for listening. Thank you.